0: Hey Cabot Cove Gazette fans, this is TJ coming to you with a little favor to ask of you. So my dear colleague and co-host Bridget is currently undertaking a survey on both Murder, She Wrote and Angela Lansbury fandom for a book she is currently writing. So if you are as in love with either Murder, She or Angela Lansbury as we are, we, she and I would love it if you could take about 30 minutes, it's uh, 30 questions on the questionnaire, to speak a little bit about your own fandom, what drew you to Murder, She Wrote, and so forth. And you can find the link for it on our Cabot Cove Gazette social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks very much in advance. Hello, everyone, and welcome to your favorite murder she wrote podcast. In hours two, I am your co-host TJ West,
1: and I'm Bridget Keys.
0: And we are going to be talking this week about the episode titled "Death Takes a Curtain Call." And we are very happy about this episode because it was one of Bridget's favorites even before we started the pod. And having watched it is now my favorite. In fact, I think it's one of the ones I had not seen prior to this, or if I have only once. So it's a great episode. It has a lot in it. It has Ruskies. It has ballet. It has thinly coated queerness. It has Ethan. It has Amos. It has Cabot Cove. It has everything. It's a a cornucopia of Murder, She Wrote And the
1: KGB. So much KGB. (laughs) So Bridget, why don't
0: you give us a summary since I gave the one for last week's episode?
1: Sure. Um, so this is our first KGB episode, which is great. Those are those my favorite Murder, She Wrote episodes. But um, essentially, Jessica has been invited by this guy, Leo, that the series tries to make us believe has always been around, uh, who we've never heard of before, but it's apparently <laughs> a good friend of Jessica. And they go to Boston to watch the ballet. But while they're there, it's actually a plot so that Leo can help the dancers who he's related to defect to America, But unfortunately, as they're making their escape, someone gets killed, a KGB officer. Uh, So, of course, it seems now not like they've escaped for asylum, but that they've escaped because they've committed murder. And the entire episode revolves around trying to keep them in hiding while solving the murder.
0: Right. And who is it? Who is it that turns out to be the perpetrator of said crime?
1: I don't even remember anymore. It's
0: one of the other, mean, other dancers. I have, it, I have it
1: in my notes. I have it in my notes. It's Arena, the other dancer. Right, Arena. She <laughs> is in
0: love with the, one of the male the male dancers. She's in, in love case.
1: with Alexander, and so she, she kills the KGB officer to help them make their escape, which is quite romantic.
0: It is, and it's one of the better. I think you know we always are complaining about the. Contrivances for motive, but this actually seems like one of the better motivations, yeah. and it's something that would actually because she occurs to her in a moment of clarity after she realizes that her lover and his his girlfriend are escaping. She realizes that if she frames them for their for the murder of the KGB agent, that she can keep him or at least keep him from like escaping from her. Yeah. So it's a moment like it's I, I it read to me as plausible that that would come to you in a moment of maddened impassioned totally love
1: yeah. I'd do it. You'd do what, to be clear? This is where TJ always <laughs> says how he would commit the murder if he were the one doing it. And I'm always vaguely terrified to know him.
0: <laughs> I wouldn't murder you unless, well.
1: well I, I hope you wouldn't murder would me. Do. I hope you'd murder a KGB officer to help me get us asylum or something.
0: Yeah, I mean, well, if I, if I felt like you were going to leave me for someone else, then yes, <laughs> I would certainly strike down someone in a fit of, of impassioned rage. I will
1: never speak to another gay man. You will always be mine.
0: There you go. That's what I'm, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> this this right here, this is the high quality material that these listeners <laughs> tune in for. You say that every week. So, I know, I think but that's because we're always dishing out new content. What
1: you said at the beginning was so true, and maybe that's part of why I love this episode, because we get both the Cabot Cove group and we get that sort of big city feel that we have in other episodes because the, boss, the ballet takes place in Boston and Jessica's gone there with Leo um, and she's staying in a hotel room in Boston while she tries to solve the murder and there's the KGB exploits there. So very international intrigue. Um, mm-hmm. But we also have the Mazarovs, the dancers. They've been ferreted back to Cabot Cove. Jessica asks Ethan to hide them in his boat Um, And so we keep cutting back to Ethan trying to keep these these very conspicuous Russians who don't speak English very well. He's trying to hide them in Cabot Cove, a town where everyone knows everyone. Mm -hmm. Um, And Amos keeps missing. he thinks that uh,
0: that Sasha, I think, is her name. And then he says that he thinks she's a... Natalia I'm sorry
1: he thinks that she's a Swede for oh my Minnesota. god god bless him but this is a, you know so it's so we get this like really fun shtick with Amos and Ethan and as Amos is like just being such an idiot that he can't see what's right in front of him because he even comes to Ethan and is like hey who's that rando guy I don't know and Ethan's like oh yeah it's my new deckhand yeah you know big deal and Amos is like well I want you to be on the lookout for two new people in town because we might have the dancers here never occurs to him god bless him
0: i know i mean i love i truly do love the light touch of Cabot cove like you know i've said this before when we had episodes here but it is it does feel like somewhere that you'd want to live in, in a way well maybe not you but as a small town girl like you know there's you could take the girl of the small town but you can't take the small. just town a
1: the small girl. town girl oh god now we're gonna have to pay royalties
0: Oh no. Well, we didn't we, it was a very small <laughs> snippet. And...
1: Um it does feel it feels like a nice place because like like Ethan is like Jesus Jessica, are you really asking me to do this? Like I could be arrested. I could I mean this is like an international crime what you're asking me to do, but he does it anyway.
0: I mean, I love Ethan and I you know, I haven't seen that many Ethan episodes before I started watching with you cuz I most of the ones I've seen and that are in like constant rotation on the channels are ones with seth and so i do think like ethan is one of those characters that feels like should have stuck around not that i don't i love seth Hazlitt. i love the dynamic that he has with Jessica, yeah don't and send us like letters is, for saying this no but i do really feel like we lost something unique when we lost ethan he's a good maybe it's guy he's I I a Cla- really good guy and maybe it's because i'm like dorothy and one of my fantasies is claude Aikens naked on a waterbed. <laughs> i don't know but like I just I love the bluffness of his persona, which is not content. He's not cantankerous and acidic like Seth. He's just bluff and avuncular and affable. Bluff. You know, like um, how do we describe it? You've never heard someone describe as bluff? Like
1: you mean like he's blunt and buff at the same time?
0: Yeah, it's kind of like that. Yeah, I mean that's not actually what it's. It's a close uh, approximation. Of he what plays I mean. poker well. But this is.
1: No, no, no. Let me see if I can go on while I while He's I look. He's now up, gesturing a good that I should keep talking while he pulls out his phone and looks stuff up. So oh I God.
0: could so I could give you a good definition of what I mean by bluff because it's one of those things that I I know what I mean, but if you don't hear that word used in common parlance, you might not know. Why am I like this? I use over all the all time. all the time.
1: I know all the time. Because you paid a lot of money to get a PhD, and you feel like you need to exercise. I was
0: like, "Oh, please!" I was like this from a (laughs) childhood. Like I was always been obnoxious (laughs) and pretentious. So it's this is not a production. This is not a product of my graduate training. This is a product of of years of being having an inferiority complex. I suspect. But anyway, anyway, so we have this
1: beautiful dynamic between Ethan and Amos um, in Cabot Cove at the same time that we have, and it's it's friendly. But it's also kind of antagonistic, right? Because Ethan doesn't want Amos to find the, in in Amos's words, rusky toe dancers. Uh, and at the same time in Boston, we have that being paralleled with Jessica and Karzoff, the KGB agent, who says, listen, you're a mystery novelist. I've read your books. Why don't we work together to figure out who killed this guy? Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, they're working at opposite ends because Jessica wants to find out who the murderer is in order to clear Alexander and Natalia. The KGB officer wants to find out so that he can make sure Alexander and Natalia don't escape, don't defect to Mm -hmm. the United States. But so the two of them are enemies in a way, and yet they develop this great rapport, like really respectful, kind of charming interactions. It's a lot of fun to watch.
0: It is. And so speaking of bluff, and so according to Merriam-Webster, which I don't normally like, you know, quoting the dictionary like an undergrad, but it's a good-naturedly frank and outspoken. So that's what I was getting at. So, (laughs) but speaking of that, I think that there's a similar dynamic at work with Anatoly Karzoff, who is played by the great actor, William Conrad. And I'm going to be showing my old lady kind of persona here, as my partner pointed out to me when I was remarking on how much I love William Conrad and everything I see him in. He is one of those actors that is so quintessentially of an earlier period of television that I just can't help but love him. Like, there's something mm-hmm. almost like Orson Wellesy, and I'm not just talking about his physicality, although he is very large. Like, he's a, a large and avuncular kind of person. But I do think that he has a sort of scenery-chewing and very... knowing, in a very knowing way. Like, he knows that he's really hamming it up as this, you know, stereotypical Russian KGB leader. But as you say, there is a certain kind of grace and graciousness to him that I think Conrad, only Conrad could capture it because only he has that particular kind of approach to acting and it's a very it's all it's quasi theatrical almost mm-hmm. and I really appreciate that about how and it's also true that Conrad had a large career in radio before like it, before he really moved into television and so I think that also helps give him that sense of gravitas and also archness that i really appreciated
1: he um I, i'm not as familiar with his work as you are um before this although after this he's in jake and the fat man um right but what stood out to me was i got sydney Greenstreet vibes so sydney Greenstreet mm. plays the also large guy in casablanca who similarly is like Kind of bad, but maybe not kind of bad. Also, kind of helps people in a way. It's sort of a confusing relationship. Right. And it wasn't just their European size, but it's trope. also like sort of their delivery of lines and the way they kind of mm-hmm. laugh at their own jokes. Uh-huh. He felt to me like Sydney Green Street.
0: Yeah, I think that's a very apt comparison. And it's very true. Like, I mean, even though Conrad is himself American, you know, he captures that kind of cor- almost corrupt, almost um, over opulent. Maybe overripe kind of Europeanness yeah. that is a very common trope within you know within T V and film for a long time and certainly maps very well onto the um, onto the Russian context you know oh, yeah. he has what we his compare his sort of counterpart today would be the various corrupt oligarchs in mm-hmm. Russia that have risen up in Putin's wake so that's definitely he's. He's a what's the word I'm looking for? He's baroque. That's what I'm looking for. He's kind, there's a baroqueness. Ooh, that's and a I good mean, way like,
1: to describe him. I like that.
0: He's, there's a baroqueness to Anatoly that is very much, I think, reflective of late stage, um, you know, imminent Soviet collapse. Like he is someone who might believe in the ideology of communism, but probably not really. So he's just kind of like oh yeah. Performing. I mean, we know that
1: he reads Jessica's books. Right. right. So he's
0: just performing. So it's like that's why I say baroque because there's like a sense of ornate performance It's totally. It. It's and then even up.
1: at the end when Alexander and Natalia do effectively defect or as we would say today get asylum in the US, um, they escape and he's like, "Nah. Good for them." Yeah. He's kind of yeah, like, right? I, mean, "I would have done the same if I were them."
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So there's that that's he's why really I think ambivalent that, oh, right, about
1: his function within the the Soviet government.
0: Mm -hmm. And that's why Conrad is just so perfect for this role. Like, that's what makes him such an extremely good fit for the role of Anatoly, is he can capture that kind of world-weary, more than a little cynical, really, approach to this whole international brouhaha.
1: International brouhaha. But, you know, Mm -hmm. so much of this episode relies on the viewer kind of understanding those Cold War um, politics, Especially mm-hmm. as they took shape in the '80s, which is really different than like in the '60s. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, for me, the whole idea that Alexander and Natalia want to defect—this is going to be such a specific cultural reference teach. And I bet it's not the same for you, because the first time I learned about defection was reading *Sweet Valley Twins*, and they mm. have a, a like a the gymnasts from East Germany come to visit their town for some reason that I can't remember and, and one of them stays at their house like a foreign exchange gymnast and he announces that he's going to defect and that was the first time that as a kid I learned what that word is and what it meant and it was completely tied up again with this idea that like specifically because you are from a communist country and you want to stay in the U.S.
0: Hmm. Um,
1: I'm curious to know when you first heard that term Defection?
0: Oh, that's a tough one. I guess. I mean, I guess maybe the first time I would be conscious of it is actually the Golden Girls episode where um, we have again a, a Russian episode, and we get the time when Rose lights a letter to to Gorbachev, yeah. and then at the that's end when episode. it's revealed that that yes, it is, and then he, they realize that it was that it wasn't a three a nine year old girl that the guy who is the sort of emissary from the Soviet Union says, you know. <laughs> I'm now my name is Dave and then runs out the door. So I guess that's probably the closest I could come. I can't really remember any other. But
1: see, then already between our two examples, it's such a thing in the 1980s, this idea that people were just desperate to flee the Soviet Union and any Eastern Bloc countries.
0: Or at least in American eyes, they were. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that that's the story we really liked hearing in the US. And I think it's interesting because we don't really use the term defect today.
0: Right. We, as you said earlier, we use asylum. Seeking
1: asylum, right? Defect sounds so much more like mysterious and like politically charged.
0: Right now, if we think about the term defect, we usually use it in context of the Koreas, so, like someone defected to South Korea. Yeah, that's true. Because we it's a specifically it. right. Because it's a specifically communist or you know anti foreign government. Yeah. Because you know it feels it has a different connotation than asylum
1: makes you wonder if because, they rebooted Murder, She Wrote. Would all these KGB episodes be like about Korea?
0: Possibly. Or, I mean, it could well, it still
1: be about Russia. <laughs> I
0: say, it could still be about Russia, really. So considering, you know, their influence in the last election or, well, two elections ago.
1: So um, you described William Conrad as Baroque. And I want to circle back to that term, because I think mm-hmm. we do get a little bit of baroqueness in this episode with Leo and the usher at the theater who helps him, Eddington. Mm-hmm. So as I said in the beginning, you know, Leo is set up to us as someone we're supposed to know. Just, Jessica tells Ethan, like, Leo got me tickets to ballet, so I'm going with him. And it's almost as if we've heard of the character before. And I actually had to like double check. I was like, I swear to God, we've never heard of Leo. And we haven't. He's totally new to this episode. But he's established into the world of Kabat-Kova, someone that Jessica has been friends with for a very, very long time. And we Mm -hmm. ultimately learned that he also escaped after World War II, fighting in the Soviet Army. He escaped uh, to the U.S., sought refuge here. And he's been living here ever since. And the guy who helps him at the theater, his name is Eddington. And when Jessica goes to interview him, we see him in this beautiful red, like, smoking jacket thing. mm mm-hmm. Um. Anyway, teach. just go ahead and take up where I'm leaving off. I will. So I said,
0: again, this is one of those things where you have to be plugged into our text chain that Bridget and I regularly have. And I literally, as I did last week when I was texting her about last week's episode, I te- sent her a text and I said, Eddington's queer, right? And I think that there are enough connotations of queerness... To really bring that out, like, as you say, the smoking jacket, his delivery is just on this edge of mincing, which I should know about because my delivery is also very mincing, as I'm doing right now. So there is, (laughs) you know, a a delicacy to his delivery. Well, and Leo was
1: a dancer until his Mm -hmm. knee got hurt. And, of course, dancing Mm -hmm. does not imply any particular sexuality, right? But it's often used in pop culture as a shortcut to describe... Right. Certain sexualities. I mean, it's just like
0: it's like just like being in the theater just because you're, you know, a renowned thespian doesn't mean you're a queer. Okay, Well,
1: everyone in but anyway. my theater people, I was a theater major. And then and then there's also this <laughs> just, like intense relationship that he and Leo have, mm-hmm. which we don't actually see on screen. We just hear about. Right. But I am um, I immediately mm-hmm. was like, oh, so um, Leo's gay and Eddington's his boyfriend. Right. And then Teach texted me and I was like, OK, so this is clearly built into the episode yep
0: yep. and I mean, I think it's legible that way. and I think that the, those in the know, which is to say not my grandmother, but other viewers like us at the <laughs> time, probably would have been plugged in to the the wink, wink, nod nod of this. And I mean, certainly, you know, Murdish wrote, as I've learned, as I've done you know my own research around this pod, was apparently very popular among the gay or has, and has subsequently become very popular among the gays. Which is, I have a feeling these episodes are part of the reason why. Obviously, also, Angela being known for MAME is a part of it, too. But there are these, like, moments of queerness that... Just slyly a wink Mm -hmm. to the audience, I think, that would have been very much about, like, Oh, okay. Yeah, clearly, Leo is It's just, like, whenever they... Right? It's clearly, like, when they talked about Van Johnson's character two weeks ago, where, like, the confirmed bachelor. Everybody knows what that means. Even if he gets paired off at the end with a woman. But everyone knows what the term confirmed yeah. bachelor means. It's just like Seth is the confirmed bachelor. I don't I mean, don't like, blow my mind with that know. again because
1: I really had not thought about Seth that way. And it's, I mean, he dated Amy Amos's sister. He takes her out. Honey, I dated a woman in high school. <sighs> We're not to those episodes yet. We'll have to wait to talk about it. But in the meantime, Leo's a big fat queer. Eddington's a big fat queer. And together they are queerly taking down the Soviet Union, which is pretty cool.
0: It is pretty cool. And I think that it's one of those moments where the the various strands of an of a murder show episode really connect very seamlessly with each other and once you dig a little deeper they become even more rich and delightful. Yeah. Delightful. That's the word I would use to describe murder show. And murder show no, is delightful even
1: though there's murder. It's it's a confectionary delight. <laughs> we also have so we have the KGB, we also have the FBI hot on their trail because the murder's been committed in Boston, right? So it's under the FBI's jurisdiction. Um, and they suspect that Jessica knows a lot more about what happened to the Mazarovs than she's letting on. Mm-hmm. So they bug her phones. Mm-hmm. But of course, because she's Jessica, she knows her phones are bugged. And so she deliberately uses her bugged phone in order to relay information to people and to misdirect people. Right. Because she's amazing, which is it is. It's played in the episode as just like really fun. They're like, mm-hmm. why can't you use that phone? She's like, oh, that one's not bugged. <laughs> i gotta go in the other room and use that phone because it's the one they bugged
0: right and i mean it's really revealing that when the fbi agent comes in and, and feigns being someone from, maine, from and, maine and then she tricks him with a with a <laughs> with a uh, colloquialism of being are you from yeah. down east which yeah. it just means from maine and he doesn't realize that. So, oh no i'm not from near bangor bangor and it's just like you know
1: what this episode is the first time that i learned that down east means maine yeah me too the things you learn from tv
0: Yep, exactly they did their research. They wanted to do their, you know, the, the historical research. They want to make sure it was authentic.
1: Yeah. But I mean, it's also, you
0: know, it's interesting in that regard that Jessica's most profound relationship in this mo- in this episode is not with the FBI in her own nation, but as we have already outlined with the KGB. It's with the KGB. Agent. Yeah. I mean, so that's really an interesting. So we talk a
1: lot about how how she cooperates with law enforcement and whether they want her to in the first place. Uh, and it's really compelling that this time the cooperation is with law enforcement, but it's a foreign agent mm-hmm. rather than the American law enforcement. You know. I mean,
0: to be fair, I would also be much more likely to make friends with with Anatoly than with the rather thinly sketched out FBI agent, if it were me.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's a really well written character for somebody who exists within the space of one 42 uh-huh. minute episode. He's really compelling. It might have been forty-five minutes back then. We've increasingly had more commercial breaks. That's in true. Television, yeah, yeah. You yeah. Give it forty-five minutes.
0: So let's talk a little bit about Arena, the, the murderess. Yeah, because a couple of things stood out to me at least. She's when I just a murderer.
1: It. You don't have to like dim- make it diminutive and feminize it.
0: I don't think that murderess is necessarily diminutive. I think it's I just don't like fe-
1: feminized endings to words. I know, but it's just it has a... She's an actor and a murderer.
0: I don't know. I think murderess has a lovely like a a sibilant archness to it that I prefer. (laughs) If you don't mind, I had a point
1: other than just. Oh, sorry. Okay, so arena the murderess, go ahead.
0: So there's that first scene where she meets up with um, with the two other ballet dancers. What, what, what are the names? Help me. Um,
1: Alexander and Natalia. It's funny I, that you yeah. can't remember them because they're like, it's like they just like grabbed the most yeah. basic Russian names possible.
0: Yeah. So Alexander and Natalia. So there's the first scene where we see the three of them together and she leans in and like there's a really fraught connection between her and Natalia. Like, yeah. I I thought they were the love. I mean, if I was like, if I was just watching it, it felt erotically charged when they connected. Even though, of course, it turns mm. out that Arena's real love is for Alexander. But mm-hmm. I was just like, wow, is there something? Be- I mean, I don't know. What did you think? Did you think? Did you catch that too, or is it just me reading? Um, it?
1: I can cool. see it. I mean, I just thought they were like really, really good friends. But then you know, oh, once sure. we actually <laughs> learn what their backstory is, it's like, oh, yeah, they're not like- friends at all. That was like, that was women who hate each other doing mm. what women do when they hate each other which is acting like they really like each other because women are really good at that i don't know if that's men true do gay men i don't know if you guys do it yes. to the same extent but it's like yes they almost do. the more you hate someone the nicer you act to them
0: that is correct and I, think I also that's what we saw i just had to crack up when you said i just thought they were friends yeah that's just that's like, like my grandma friends. thought that yeah that's why that my grandma thought the murderers and rope were just roommates right okay <laughs>
1: I know. And it's like as if I'm like some total innocent like straight girl who doesn't like, I don't know anything about anything. I'm like a big fat les. I see queerness in everything. And I'm like, oh, I just thought they were friends. It's fine. (laughs) But I also, um, I remember for probably the first two or three times I watched this episode in my life, I was confused about everybody's relationships because it's Irina is in love with Alexander. And it almost seemed like Alexander and Natalia, we don't actually see any sort of romantic or sexual connection between them. So I thought oh, they must be siblings, Mm
0: -hmm. and they both
1: have dark hair, you know? Yeah. And then so Arena's in love with Alexander, and then the reason she's nice to Natalia is because, like, that's her future sister-in-law.
0: Right. I mean, I do think that this is one of those moments where performance may undercut or at least open up other avenues of exploration that go beyond the narrative. Like, I do think maybe there is something erotically charged about um, Arena's relationship with Natalia, thats that goes beyond what the narrative tells us, and that the, the <laughs> currents of desire might actually be much more muddied. And I also think that suggests, like, alexander also looks perpetually petulant so i don't know it just seems like there's a whole different story well he's feminized because he's
1: wearing his theatrical makeup for like most of the episode exactly and he always still has his like eyeliner on and stuff and
0: he always looks very faintly bitchy like that's the only (laughs) way i could describe it
1: so what you want to do is like rewrite the episode so that actually jessica got it wrong and arena didn't kill barinsky to protect alexander she did it to protect her true love natalia
0: Yes, I mean, which actually would make. And more And Alexander sense is like their gay she boy toy. Alexander. Yes, it would make more sense if she framed Alexander oh. rather than framing her with Natalia. Like Natalia So never... So,
1: in your mind, Alexander and Natalia are married still, and yes. Arena's like, "We need to get rid of the husband so I can have you." Yes, this is a good story. I like it.
0: Yeah, but just, I mean, I know I'm just like being fanciful, but I do think that is one of those moments where performance can lend itself to queer readings that, again, the narrative itself doesn't support.
1: Yeah. Definitely.
0: At least from this queer's perspective.
1: So. <laughs> people are going to be like, you guys think every episode is queer. Well, it is. Okay. I, mean, <laughs>
0: I mean, most of them are in some way or another. Yeah. But that's just the ubiquitous. I mean, queerness is everywhere. It's just that straight people don't like being reminded of that fact. Because it disrupts their ordered understanding of the world.
1: You know, TJ, last week we talked about um, the sleaze factor of our theme park magnet. Mm-hmm. Um, and his really horrible choice of words. And we also get sleaze in this episode because we have the one of the first things mm-hmm, we see is the stage mm-hmm. manager hitting on Arena. Right. And like trying to get her to like go in the dressing room yeah, with him. Yeah, he's so gross. And he's so gross. He's so gross. And like one of the Russians is like, you need to just effing stay away from these dancers. Like, what is wrong with you? Mm-hmm. And then later, um, we even use his sleaziness to our advantage like Jessica gets him to drive arena all the way from Boston to Cabot Cove which is like an over two hour drive right for the promise of what I don't know like getting to fuck arena once he gets to Cabot Cove
0: yeah I don't know but you're right and that is one of those moments also like where we hear that you mentioned you wanted to talk about the many different diminutive terms for Russians that get used throughout the episode I think he is responsible for at least half of them (laughs)
1: it's true we have like comrade commie ruski
0: uh, yes ruski is one of my favorites yeah that's that's the one you don't hear necessarily much anymore
1: no ruski they say it both Rusky. ways ruski and ruski yeah we also have the anti-communist lady who's like yep. protesting the ballet is being protested outside by some people who feel like having the ballet is somehow allowing communism to invade the united states Which is crazy because if you think of, first of all, ballet's origins are French. And then it's also like a very high culture. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so she's... Always yelling slurs about communism and and actually manages
0: to run out onto the stage during the curtain call, like during the when the curtain comes down to scream like
1: ban the ballet, ban the ballet, yeah, which I love because like I can just totally see like a segment of today's you know Trumpy anti-vax population saying something like ban the ballet. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine like the ballet is responsible for brainwashing our children?
0: Right, which is what I mean. What makes this move this episode? I don't know. why I keep saying the movie this episode so like ideologically complicated and even contradictory is that while it's not necessarily sympathetic to the you know to the communists because obviously it wants Leo it wants us to sympathize with Leo and with um, Alexander and um, Natalia escaping from Russia and from you know from communism it also doesn't necessarily paint Americans in a much more flattering light because the anti-communists are just as silly and idiotic as everyone else so it's really one of those kind of as much as the golden girls did in letters to Gorbachev pointing out that neither side necessarily has the moral high ground and that sort of retreating into these belligerent kind of warlike footing for either side is not necessarily very helpful or productive.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And in fact, what, if there is a place of um, reasonableness, it's Jessica and Karzoff who are able to find middle ground
0: Right. And then it all, you know, it all kind of really coagulates around Cabot Cove. Like so small, the sensibility and the sense of not sensibility, the um, common senseness of Cabot Cove, you know, the small town America is where the solution to great international crises can get resolved, which is really interesting (laughs) if you think about it, (laughs) you know, which is really interesting if you think about it, which is why like the narrative of this episode being split along both the sort of outside Cabot Cove but also inside Cabot Cove Axis is really all that much more important
1: mm-hmm, yeah, that's uh what a lovely episode this is
0: it is, and i mean i I genuinely thought it was a really great episode of both murder She wrote but also of television. like it's just one of those things that's really well put together that really brings all of its pieces into a nice c- coherent whole,
1: yeah. I love the, just the beginning, the setup for the escape and the, their daunting escape from the ballet right before the curtain call. It's very Von Trapp family fleeing Mm -hmm. the Nazis, you know, everyone's waiting for them to come out at the curtain call. It's just, it's such a fun episode. It really is. So we should probably wrap up though, huh?
0: I think so. We're at the, uh, the half-hour mark, so I guess we'll call it quits for this week. As always, we do want to thank you all for listening to us. We really appreciate the listenership. We love putting this pod together, and we love sharing our thoughts with all of you. So, Bridget, why don't you tell us who did our theme music?
1: Our theme music is Reaching for the Sky, composed by Alexander Nakarada, used under Creative Commons license. We're on Twitter and Instagram at @cove_gazette, and you can find us on Facebook at the Cabot Cove Gazette.
0: Perfect. So once again, thank you for listening. I am your co-host TJ West.
1: I'm Bridget Keyes. And we will talk to you next week.